Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. And I'm grateful for the chance to be with you to honor our veterans. Uh, it is an enormous opportunity because Fox News gave me the option of being here with you this evening or being in Kandahar, which is, it wasn't a hard choice. I get to sleep in the dirt. The harder choices are when they offer me the chance to go up and, and sit in a congressional hearing in Washington, D.C., or go to Kandahar. I'll take Kandahar every time. It's great to be with you because you're honoring people who mean an awful lot to me. You know, when I was a kid, and that was a long time ago, when I was a kid, it was called Armistice Day because on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the year 19, of the 11th month, 1917, 1918, World War I ended. So you're talking about something that occurred 101 years ago this weekend. And then it became Veterans Day, thanks to Dwight David Eisenhower. And now it's Mattress Sale Day and, you know, Beat Black Friday Day. And, and so there's, there's, it's a special thing to come to a community where you can pull this many people together on a Sunday night who instead of watching people kneel down when the national anthem is played, everybody stands up. I, I, I promised Pastor Rawlings I would not get political. I'm trying like Dickens not to be political. But I do work for Fox News. And, and by the way, thank you for making Fox number one so I've got a job. I have been blessed to spend my entire life in the company of heroes. All of my uncles, my father, all of my brothers and I all served in combat in one war or another. And so it wasn't hard to make the transition into doing what I'm doing today because after I left the Marine Corps, I did some of the things that Dale was kind enough to describe here a few moments ago. But then Fox gave me the opportunity starting in 9-11-01 to keep company with a new generation of heroes that that Dale just described here a few moments ago. Now, I say the word hero when I'm talking to young people, and I, what a wonderful band that you've got in this high school, but I know that, that some of you, you do. <laughs> beautiful music. But I know when I, see, I've got, of those 17 grandkids, several of them are about your all age. And I know that when I talk to some of the youngsters, they think a hero is somebody who catches the pass in the end zone at the Friday night football game. Or a hero is someone who just sets a new Olympic record, or someone who just you know, made a great movie, or maybe someone wearing a spandex suit and a cape. But my heroes wear flak jackets and flight suits, and they wear dog tags around their neck. And they go to work in the most difficult and dangerous places on the planet Earth, places where Dale and I have spent some time. And so I look at those kinds of opportunities, and I say the classical definition of a hero is a person who puts him or herself at risk for the benefit of others. That's a hero. And that defines every one of the veterans who were honored in that beautiful imagery we saw on the screen, every one of you who have served in the armed forces of the United States, and, remember, puts themselves at risk for the benefit of others, and their families, because they're all at risk. One never knows, in peacetime or wartime, 
it's still a very dangerous endeavor. Since June 1st this year until yesterday, 58 American service members have been killed in training before they ever got to a war. That's more than we've lost in combat in both theaters of war since June. Think about that. The wives and children of those who are serving in the armed forces never know when the chaplain is going to walk up the walk and tell a wife and, ch and children words they never wanted to hear. And so they're all at risk as well. Since 9-11, and Dale gave the numbers, 2.7 million young Americans have gone off to fight in this war. None of them have gone to places that one would consider to be comfortable. None of them went for any other reason other than that their country asked them to do so. And they're there to protect us from what happened on 9-11 and to offer others the hope of freedom. My job at Fox is to simply let these heroes tell their stories without telling bad guys things they don't need to know. And so I want you to just see what one of my producers put together last year when number 17 was being, I'm always a little worried when somebody introduces me that way because I'm, I'm a little concerned they're going to get it backwards and say the husband of four, the father of one, and well, I don't know where the 17 would have come from. But let, well, without getting too deep into that one, I, the, the, as that number 17 was born, the producer said, you know, you've missed so many birthdays and so many holidays and Thanksgivings and, and all those kinds of celebrations with him. I'm going to put something together that you can show them. So this, this is footage put together mostly from my helmet cam, but I'm in some of it. But these are the people we're talking about. These are the youngsters, these 2.7 million, who came into the service knowing that there was a war on when they didn't have to. They're remarkably well-trained. They operate and maintain the most sophisticated weapons and equipment that the world has ever seen. The minimum requirement to get in the service today is high school graduate, but the average education is 13 and a half years for an enlistee and across the board in the armed forces. And they've been taught chemistry and physics and ballistics and avionics, and they operate and maintain the most sophisticated weapons and equipment in the world. And they can take a life or save one because they're so remarkably well-trained. They use their bodies like weapons. They use their weapons like part of their bodies. And they're up against an adversary who is suicidal in trying to kill them. Over 90% of the casualties in this war have been caused by improvised explosive devices, many of them worn by our adversaries who walk up and blow themselves to pieces. And when you see something like an MV-22 coming into a mountaintop, and you see a battalion commander getting off, he's in enormous jeopardy right there. Something that didn't normally happen in most wars. And all of these youngsters that are out there know that they have each other's back. When they say, I've got your back, that is not the slogan of a mattress company. And every one of them, for the first time since the American Revolution, is a volunteer. Think about that. Nobody's drafted, nobody's press gang. Dexter, that beautiful lab right there, is the best improvised explosive device God ever made. And Smitty, his dog handler, you're going to see them again in a minute. They're a remarkable team together, because if you follow Dexter out of a helicopter, as I have done many times, you know you're not going to step on an IED because Dexter's not going to let you. That's the kind of people we have out there. You see a little bit of combat baseball. By the way, that was a bamboo bat and a rock. You saw what happened at first base in that picture. It's, it's awful.
And that's how they, that's how they have fun when they can. I show you those things not to impress upon you the danger that they're in, but the kind of people that we've got serving in our armed forces today. And what they're up against is extraordinary. They also have certain criteria that's going to apply to everybody in this room by the time we're done tonight. There's four values, four qualities, four virtues, if you will. And I'm going to talk to you very briefly about them as a means of, if I can, encouraging you to keep some commitments. So number one, situational awareness. Now, situational awareness, when you define it, doesn't simply mean that you're aware of what's going on around you. It means that you're also prepared to do something about it. And these, these youngsters have enormous situational awareness. I'll, I'll share this with you, friends. Situational awareness is not a flower that grows in every garden. And I've seen a lot of examples of what it's not. A few months back, I got stranded on a flight coming back from San Diego through Chicago back to Dulles Airport on the red eye, which is the one that fly, you know, takes off at 10 o'clock at night and it lands at 5 o'clock in the morning after you've changed planes in Chicago. We didn't make it to Chicago. We were diverted to Indianapolis. Has anybody here been in the Indianapolis airport? Yeah. The, the United Concourse is about the size of your table, right? There's about 7,000 people jammed into it. Crowd like this. There's no place to sit. I know I'm not going to be home in time, so I'm looking for a place to charge my cell phone, which is out of, out of battery. And I see a cell phone, or I see an electrical outlet behind an older man, and I'm old enough to know an older man when I see one. I walk over to the guy and I tap him on the shoulder. He's dozing. I'm wearing, a sun, I'm wearing sunglasses and a baseball hat at 2 o'clock in the morning. I said, excuse me, sir, can, can I plug in my, my phone behind you? He looks up at me and he says, I know who you are. So let's not start something in here tonight that we can't finish. Can I please plug in my phone? And then he says to me, I read your book about World War II. And I cried on every page. Now, I... I've written four books about World War II, but he quit at one. Okay. Can I, can I plug in the phone, please, sir? I used to watch you on television, and I loved every minute. Now, friends, I work for Fox News. All we ask of you, 24-7, 365, turn it on, leave it on, save the batteries in your remote. Right? He used to watch me on television. Can I plug in my phone? See, yeah, go ahead. Can I have your autograph? Mr. Brokaw. None of the kids back in that band know who I'm talking about. I, Betsy, you know, we've been married 49 years now. You can talk to each other very plainly after 49 years of marriage. For the, you youngsters who don't know that, you can. She says, I have a gene defect. Since we're in church, Pastor, I'll put it this way. She calls it the smart, well, it begins with A, but it's not Alec. <laughs> smart Alec Gene. I take out of my pocket one of these cards. This is what Fox calls a signature card. They give us this so you don't have to tear up shopping bags at supermarkets when somebody asks for an autograph. I reach into my pocket and I pull out the card. I flip it over backwards. This is what's showing. And I said, Grateful that I've been able to plug in my phone. To whom shall I make this, sir? He said, make it out to Phil. I write, Phil, all the best, Tom. <laughs> and I hand him the card. And he looks down at it. And then he looks back up at me, and he has tears coming down his face. And then he says to me, 
I'm the only happy person in this airport tonight. <laughs> Pastor Rawlings, you and I have known each other a long time. I ask you, sir, what is the right thing to do at this point? I didn't either. I didn't either. I did nothing. I walked away. I got home and I checked the moral arbiter of my universe and she says, you are such a jerk. Yeah, you talk that way after you've been married 49 years. He's going to get home. He's going to take the card out. He's going to show you, his wife what you wrote on the whites. And then he's going to look at the back of the card and say, what the heck is Tom Brokaw using Ollie North's cards for? <laughs> Second example. Well, at my foundation takes, does a fundraiser trip to the Holy Land every year. I, I know pastor's been out there probably more times than I have. And it, last year, we were out there. We're in the, ho the, the David Citadel Hotel waiting in the lobby for another couple to come down. We're going to go to dinner with some Israeli friends of mine. And in front of the hotel, up pulls a tour bus full of gringos. I know they're gringos because on the side of it, it says, Mike Huckabee, Holy Land Tours. <laughs> right? And the so first guy walks off the bus. He walks over to me and he says, did anybody ever tell you you look a lot like Ollie North? Remember the gene defect? I say to him, well, it's a good thing I look like Ollie North because I'm sleeping with his wife. <laughs> Guess who's not laughing? And then he says, without any, without any, so she's just standing there watching this all happen. He says to me, you better watch yourself. He's a U.S. Marine. He'll kick your butt and walks away. Mrs. Smartass, or Alec, Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Smart Alec says, don't quit your day job, big boy. You're never going to make it in stand-up comedy. Yeah. Bottom line, situational awareness means that you have to know what's going on, be prepared to do something about it, and adapt if the situation requires it. I want you to remember that here in a few minutes. Second quality. The best leaders, and Dale and I talked a little bit about this at dinner, and every one of you who've worn a uniform know this. The best kind of leaders are leaders who are servants of those they lead. They have to lead by example. Again, I'm not trying to get into politics, but I know that there was a while back some people used to talk about leading from behind. By definition, you cannot lead from behind. You have to be in front, and you have to do you have to be able to do the things that you're asking other people to do. And that's the whole essence of leadership. A good leader will never ask or demand or insist that others do that which the leader could not or would not do. And the best leaders are the ones who know that they are servants of those they lead. And those they lead know that that leader will sacrifice himself or herself for them. I want to give you an example of that that relates to why I'm here tonight, besides just veterans. How did you learn to tie your shoes? Think about that. I mean, look at it. Was it a PowerPoint? Uh, did you read the description in the Boy Scout manual that showed you 15 ways to tie 25 different knots? Someone knelt down in front of you and showed you how to do it and kept doing it with you until you learned how to tie your shoes. I don't care how old you are in this room. We all learned the same way. In most cases, and certainly in mine, it was my mom. In others, it's someone who loved you, knelt down, and showed you how to do it. Do you know that there's a model for that in this book? 
There's a model right here. I carry, this is the, you know, there's the NIV version of it. There's the, there's the uh, revised standard version of it. There's the, the King James version of it. This is the MIV, the Marine Infantry version of the book. So if you'll forgive me, I'll describe it this way. In John's Gospel, Jesus Christ, the night before he is tortured to death, teaches his followers, 13 of them. You've all seen the photograph that was taken that night. They're all on the other side of the table. Anybody ever eat that way? No. It's the Last Supper. Before the Last Supper, Jesus Christ summons a servant to bring him a pan of water, takes a towel, and, and says, I'm going to wash your feet. In that culture, that act is always performed by a slave, a servant at the very best. And Jesus Christ is showing them how to be servants of others, just like that person that knelt down in front of you and taught you how, showed you, didn't just talked about it, showed you how to tie your shoes. And Peter says, oh, no, Lord, I'm not worthy. And he says, wait a minute, Pete. This is the, NIV, the Marine Infantry version. Wait a minute, Pete. If you don't do this, you're not going to know how to teach others to do it. And so Peter relents and lets Jesus Christ wash his feet just like the others. I, I, I give you that as an example because that's the kind of leaders I had in my experience in the United States Marine Corps. And they were so crucial to me in making certain decisions in my life that I talked about once before when I was with you. I want to come back to that in a moment. Real heroes know how to, if you will, prevail persevere in the midst of adversity. You know what I'm talking about. You lose a limb. You lose your eyes. You lose your sight. Some of the, the, the greatest inspiration that I have come from people who suffered terrible losses. Sometimes they're the widows of those you had to go tell them that their husbands were dead. Toughest job I ever had in the Marine Corps. After I was wounded the first time, they brought us all home, and if you, as soon as you were able to walk again, they would give you a chaplain. You're on light duty, and your additional duty is to go by and tell your friends, widows, that your friends are dead, and their husband won't be coming home except in a flag-draped coffin. It's one of the reasons I'm so outraged about what's going on with the NFL. I can't tell you how tired that is. And when that kind of thing happens, when that kind of loss occurs, when that kind of adversity faces them, real heroes persevere. And more often than not, they persevere because they have come to know things in this book that are already laid out for them. And I, I tell you that story because I also know that the easiest person in the world to deceive is the one you're looking at in the mirror. Think about that. The idea that people can say one thing and do another is foreign to me. I, I don't understand how people get away with doing that kind of thing, but I have seen what it takes to persevere in adversity. Charlie Plum, a dear friend of mine, spent six and a half years as a prisoner of war of the North Vietnamese, shot down when his F-4 was shot down after making a bomb run over Haiphong. And they made Charlie Plum the chaplain inside the Hanoi Hilton. Why? Because Charlie Plum was the only one who knew the words in this book that were able to instill in others that they could persevere. They could make it through, even though until the very end, none of them knew if they would ever be freed and if they were to be freed, when it would happen. Think about that. 
One of the hostages that I brought back from Beirut, David Jacobson, had been the administrator of the, of the Beirut Hospital at the American University of Beirut. And, and David freely admits that the only way he got through was memorizing what he'd gotten. And he kept asking him until finally they relented. They actually went out. These radical Islamic terrorists that held him from Hezbollah went out and got him a Bible. Because he absolutely refused to, he actually refused to eat and they didn't want to die because a hostage is not worth anything dead. So they went out and finally got him a Bible. And he prayed with the others who were there as hostages. And he gave them encouragement to persevere in adversity. And he didn't play the game of shoulda, woulda, coulda. He didn't play the game of why me. He didn't play the game of what would have been, what might have been. And if you're going to persevere in life with any adversity, you can't play that game because nobody ever wins it. Fourth quality, keeping commitments. You saw a brief snippet in the video of a fellow walking away from the camera with no legs. His name is Matt Lampert. He's a captain in the United States Marine Corps. Captain Matt Lampert was on his second combat tour in Afghanistan when I shot that video. When I brought it back, Fox wouldn't put it on air. They didn't put it on air because they thought it was too, too I, I guess, graphic for the American people to understand and accept. What was really more important is what Matt Lampert said because he's a commander of a special operations unit. Listen to Matt Lampert talk about commitment right here. My name is uh, Captain Matt Lampert. This is my uh, second combat deployment to uh, Afghanistan. And uh, I just wish uh, American people would understand there's a lot of people here that still believe in what we're doing out here and, uh, and are willing to come back again and again to, uh, to prove that point. Lost both legs. The IED that went off next to him took off both legs in what's called a traumatic amputation. The war in which many of us served, called Vietnam and before, if you had lost both limbs, two limbs, in a traumatic amputation, about 99% chance of dying. Today, because of the remarkable medical advances, how well-trained the Navy corpsmen and the Army and Air Force medics are, they're actually living through all of that. Some of the, the hemostatic bandages that they put on those wounds stop the bleeding instantly. And so instead of bleeding out and dying, they live. And they come back and they persevere, just like Matt Lampert did. I, I show you those things because I, I don't want you to think that it, it, it doesn't take something special in a person to get through those experiences. I want to show you two quick examples. I showed you just a few moments ago Dexter the dog if you look at the screen, you'll see on the right-hand side of the screen, that's Dexter. Now, these guys didn't high-five when they, Dexter and Smitty showed up. This is a frame shot from my helmet camera because I've just been assigned to this team to go on the helicopter assault with them. And I'm glad because Dexter is going to be there, and I know Dexter's not going to step on an IED, and so I'm more than likely to get through it. What do these guys do? High-five, fist bumps? What happened right here, there's a lieutenant in that circle. They're not going out on a football field. They're not high-fiving. There's a staff sergeant in that circle, but it was a Lance Corporal, an E3, on his first tour overseas, who says, guys, Dexter and Smitter are coming with us. Let's say a prayer for them. Now, everybody does it. The lieutenant kneels down, the staff sergeant kneels down, the sergeant, the corporal, everybody else, to include Smitty, 
The only one who's not praying right there is Dexter, if you look carefully. Huh? Dexter's looking at me. He's saying, hey, Bozo, you coming with me? Because I'll get you out of trouble. I, I show you that because that's leadership. That's commitment. That's understanding what's going on around you. That's situational awareness, the likes of which you can't possibly make up. And that's the kind of people we've got out in the battlefield. I dare the ACLU to tell these government employees not to pray on government time. Think about it. This is shot on the 6th of April, 2003. It was the first week of the war. Actually, the second week of the war. We went across the line of departure on the 18th of March from Kuwait. We're driving on Baghdad. Baghdad is the smoke you see in the background. And the Marine Rifle Company I'm with is Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. They're leading the attack to Baghdad. The rest of the entire Marine Division is behind us, about 10 kilometers. And they're racing up the highway to secure a bridge. And they get ambushed by a Republican Guards regiment of about 700 troops. How the, how the drones, as our press calls them, missed it is beyond me. And there is incredible gunfight. They spin the vehicles around backwards to give them a little more offset for the RPGs and 50 caliber machine guns that are being fired at them. And in the midst of this gunfight, a United States Navy corpsman, not a corpsman, by the way, I'm trying not to be political, Pastor. The United States Navy corpsman, six feet, four inches tall, third-class petty officer, now a Navy chief. And Doc rushes out into the gunfight and starts picking up wounded Marines, not with three or four people to help him carry. He puts them on his back and carries them to a helicopter that is now landed in the roadway. And at this point, I've run after him several times because just before the gunfight started, I was interviewing him in the back of an armored vehicle. And he jumped out and raced off into the gunfight. And, and there's footage shot by others that show me running behind him, A, because I can't keep up with him, and B, because he has my microphone. And Mr. Murdoch's going to want it back. And he comes running back with a wounded guy, lays him on the ramp. A shock trauma team on the helicopter wraps him in, his flak, in, a, in a, a, a shock blanket, starts an IV, and lays him on a litter inside the bird. And he comes back with a second one, a third one. This is the fourth casualty. Unbeknownst to me on the left-hand side as you're looking at it, I, this is all shot from my helmet camera. So the helmet camera is going everywhere my head is. And it's really jerky stuff. A Reuters news crew has rushed up, and they've got a tripod, and they're shooting back and forth as this guy's running back and forth. And they're catching me occasionally trying to keep <sighs> microphone. Yeah. Microphone's jammed down in his flak jacket. And this is the fourth casualty, and he comes running up to the bird. If you look very carefully at the guy he's carrying on his back, he's got U.S. military battle dressings on him. He's badly wounded. That's not a United States Marine. The guy he's carrying on his back is a wounded Republican guardsman, an enemy combatant. He just tried to kill the corpsman and the Marines. He'd have shot down the helicopter, and now he's going to get a ride on it. He's going to go to a hospital. He's going to be treated with human and Christian compassion, the likes of which, somehow or another, my colleagues, my erstwhile colleagues in the mainstream media just can't tell you about. I don't know why. Maybe they don't understand it. But that's true Christian compassion. He lays him down on the ramp. They treat the wounded guy the same way. They just pat him down and make sure he doesn't have any grenades or explosives on him. They put him in a shock blanket on a litter and start an IV. And the helicopter is now taking hold. It's getting holes in the side from the gunfire. Look at the skin of a helicopter is as thin as a, beer, as a Coke can. 
I'm in church. Coke can. You can stick a pencil through it. And the birds are taking rounds. And the crew chief yells, we've got to go. These guys that were hurt are going to get killed. And so the bird lifts off, and the corpsman and I are running back. And all the gunfire shifts to the helicopter. And out of nowhere, the Reuters news crew shouts out, hey, mate, what did you do that for? Didn't you notice that was an Iraqi? And because I am in church. Look, if these are guys who can take vulgarity to the level of a new art form, but they're not afraid to be carrying and seeing, read, reading from this book. And the corpsman looks at the Reuters news crew and gives them a gesture. You guys can explain that to the women later on. Gives him a gesture and says, didn't you bleepers, he didn't say bleepers, didn't you bleepers notice he was bleeping wounded? That's what we do, we're Americans. What a wonderful testimony to who we are. All right. I've asked probably close to 10,000 in 60 embeds overseas, I've asked at least 10,000 of them. And we got hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage that will never, you know, you do a one-hour documentary, you've probably got 100 hours of video to, to cut down and make it work on television. Uh, I, I, I look at some of it and say, I wish I could show the rest of it. And, and I look at those kinds of things out there and I say to myself, what, what's the American, what do the American people most want to know? Here's the question I asked every World War II veteran. What were you doing the day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. I've asked that question of every, we did 50 of our 104 episodes were shot about World War II. Every one of them can remember exactly what they were doing, who they were with, and how they learned about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. So I've asked these guys. And up until very recently, like last month, up until last month or so, every one of them would say, I remember what happened on 9-11. They remember this. They might have been in third or fourth grade. They might have been in diapers, but they know what happened on 9-11-01. And they'll tell me, almost to a man and a woman, I came because I know what happened on 9-11. I don't want it to happen again. In other words, I, they're speaking to me, are willing to go into harm's way. I'm willing to separate myself from the affection of loved ones. I'm willing to put myself in jeopardy, because I don't want that to happen again. You talk about self-sacrifice. And that's what an enormous number of them have told me. It's only now that even, I don't know if you remember last 9-11-01, I do. You know, it was just a few weeks ago. I remember how little attention was paid to that by my colleagues in the so-called mainstream media. Well, you know why? because it's not being ad advocated by the, by the media, by the educational institutions of America. It's not taught. In fact, for seven plus years, nobody even mentioned radical Islamic terror. Well, that's what caused all that. And I, I show you that because it's important you understand what motivated them to join. Last week, in getting ready to, to leave town for a few days, I went by to see one of the heroes, okay? Sergeant Franz Walkup is a patient at National, National Military Medical Center in Washington, D.C., Walter Reed. Now merged the two hospitals between the Army and the, and the Navy. Staff Sergeant Walkup was shot five times 
He's been in the hospital for four and a half years. He has just finally had his right leg amputated. And he's, that was three or four days before I got to see him. I couldn't see him in intensive care. Checks himself out of intensive care unit, gets his wheelchair, and comes down to see me in the main lobby of the, of the west wing of that hospital. Now, there's two things that are important here. When I was a rifle platoon commander in Vietnam, I was the second tallest guy in my rifle platoon. Today, they're all the size of Staff Sergeant Walk-Up. Look at him. He's a giant of a man. No wonder he got hurt. He's still big. He's a target. Yeah. And he'd laugh at that. He laughed at the enemy. They tried five times. Shot. And they finally, after five years, came back and took off his leg because it just wouldn't heal. The infection was kept going. And he's praying, as I am, that that infection stops below his knee because otherwise they'll take it off above the knee. That's what happens. Does this guy look down? I mean, it's too bad it's not a better shot. He's got a big, great big grin on his face because I just told him we're giving him an all-terrain track chair just like that one so he can go hunting with me here as soon as I get back home and go out in the field and do some hunting. There's no despair. There's no why me. There's no pity. He doesn't want pity. What he wants and what every veteran deserves, he wants to make sure that when he gets healthy, and he will be, that he can be productive because dignity, the dignity of a veteran is so important. I, I, I don't disparage the, the VA. The VA does not have a mandate to find a job for every guy. You know whose job that is? That's our job. Our job is to find jobs, good jobs, productive jobs, because the most important thing a person can have is a job where he's productive, has a house to live in, he can get around, he can do something and provide for a family. And so my appeal to you tonight is make a commitment to do that. If you know an employer that's got a good job and you know a veteran that doesn't have one, don't, don't be, you know, the Congress of the United States was supposed to pass three years ago a bill called Hire Heroes First. Guess what? It's never passed. It has yet to be passed. We were supposed to provide tax breaks for businesses that hired wounded veterans. Still hasn't happened. Even though the unemployment rate for veterans is, is better than it was, it's still not good enough. And for guys like that who can be very productive, they need to have some skill. They, they've got skills that needs to be, be recognized by good employers. And then there's one other thing. And this is something that may be even more important than anything else that I've said here this evening is there are those of us here who know where we are going and why we are going there. I'll just share this with you. It's very personal. I know exactly where I'm going. When I, I draw my last breath, I know where he's going. I, I know where scores of them are going because they had someone in their life who was a role model perhaps, but a person who showed them a path that they might not have seen before. Let me be very, very specific. Some of you may remember a, a, f a few years back, none of you women are old enough to remember this, but some of you guys might remember when I was invited to chat with some members of Congress in Washington. Well, actually, I was subpoenaed, but... It's a real good thing that back in 1981, that was 1987, it was 30 years ago in July. That's why none of you women are old enough to remember, you little kids, right? And so 
1981, I had the great blessing of being assigned as the operations officer for a Marine Infantry Battalion in which the commanding officer was known to be the brightest guy in the United States Marine Corps. His name was John Southey Grinnells, Lieutenant Colonel, United States Marine Corps. He had been picked up early for promotion from major to lieutenant colonel and then picked up early again for colonel. It didn't happen in the Marine Corps to a handful of us. And, and John Grinnells was also known as the brightest guy in the Marine Corps. He was the number, top of his class at West Point. I don't think he was number one. He might have been number two at West Point. But he was a Marine. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He was a White House Fellow. He had an MBA from Harvard. And he was still a courageous Marine. A Silver Star, Purple Hearts, from his first tour in, in Vietnam. He'd done two of them. And he asked me to be his operations officer. And here's what went through my mind. He's going to be a general someday. Everybody knew John Grills was going to be a general someday. If I go with him, I'll give up the job I've got right now, but I'll be a general too because I hooked my wagon to his star and I'll be okay. There was another thing about John Grills that used to bother a lot of people. He had a copy of this book on his desk at the Marine headquarters where he and I worked. There was a partition that divided us down, right down between our desks. And I periodically would look over because I, I, was, I was a captain. He was a and, and made major, and then he was a major and then made lieutenant colonel, I would have to hand him pieces of paper, that, sir, this needs your, your approval before it goes forward to the commandant. And the commandant of the Marine Corps, when I would bring that briefing paper down to him, would say, what's Grinnell's think? Well, the whole doggone headquarters full of hundreds of Marines, he'd ask, what's Grinnell's think? And I would periodically catch then Lieutenant Colonel Grinnell's reading from this book. Remember what I said earlier about the ACLU? Probably could have turned him in. Government time. You know, wasting time reading that book. I went with him anyway, even though he was known as a Bible thumper. And on our deployment, we lost 11 Marines going out to the Mediterranean, where the landing force for the Sixth Fleet does things like Grenada and does things like rescuing hostages, rescuing downed pilots, Scott O'Grady, and rescuing... Americans in terrible places and embassies and getting blown up in Beirut. We lost 11 Marines on our first deployment together. And I watched John Grinnells every day as his operations officer, inspiring people by his example, his courage, his situational awareness, his commitment, his self-sacrifice, because he'd never ask anybody to do that which he could not or would not do, and came to admire his faith to the point where he said to me, in front of many others, nowadays this will get you in trouble. You know, it's, it's, it's contrary to regulations to proselytize from a senior to a subordinate. It's okay for the sergeant to say, Colonel, you ought to read this book. But the, the colonel can't tell that to the sergeant and shouldn't be telling that to the major. But John Grinnell saw something in me that he knew I needed to know what was in the book. I'm 35 years old at that point. And he handed me the book and he said, here, read this. You have got to come to know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I thought I knew him. I went to church when I was a kid. Didn't go much after, you know, I was all too busy to go when I was a young officer. We had some chaplains overseas that would say things like that, but they were chaplains. And I'd seen guys die in my arms. I'd seen guys die around me. And really didn't think much about where would they go. Where would I go until John Grinnell said this. 
I did what a good Marine would do, I guess. I, I didn't go to West Point. I went to a trade school called Annapolis. But when you start a book, when you start a book, you start at the beginning. I started at Genesis. I got to Leviticus and darn near quit. And then I got to Matthew's Gospel, the 8th chapter, verses 5 through 13. And there was something I could finally understood. It's the first gospel. I could understand infantry. I am infantry, right? And there in, in Matthew's Gospel, it's an infantry officer. He's a Roman soldier. He commands 100 Roman soldiers because that's called a sentry. And he's a centurion. He commands that unit, just like I'd commanded a rifle company. And in a place called Capernaum, where I've, I, every time I take a group back there, I tell them this story about what happened there if they haven't read it before. Because the Roman army infantry officer walks up to Jesus Christ and he says, Lord, I've got a sick servant at home. And in, in some translations of that same story in Luke, he calls it his slave. I've got a sick servant at home. Would you heal him? And Jesus is teaching right outside the synagogue that they've now uncovered, that they've unearthed it. They know that this is Pete's town. Peter it lives there. Mom's cooking pizza for these guys every night. They're walking around all over the place in the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, sure, let's go. And the Roman army officer says, oh, no, look, Lord, I'm a man of authority. I can tell someone to come, and they come. I can tell another to go, and they go. I know what authority is. You are of authority. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed, healed, healed. It suddenly dawned on me what John Grinnells was doing to me. I've, I've said in his presence, John Grinnells led me to the Lord, and John Grills would say, no, stop, stop. No one can lead you to the Lord. All they can do is show you the path. They can show you the path. You have to walk it yourself. Now listen to me carefully. There are many of you here who know exactly what I'm talking about. There are many of you here who do not. And so I challenge you here this evening to please find the people here tonight. There's no more important decision anybody could ever make in their life. We're going to get in a car and we're going to drive two hours back to Columbus to the airport so I can be on a 6 a.m. flight tomorrow morning. And Josh, where are you, Josh? Josh is going to drive me. And I have absolute certainty where I'm going. Columbus, I hope. But, <laughs> but if it's not, if an 18-wheeler runs over us like happened to me in 1964 when I didn't know where I was going, I have absolute certainty. I'm not at all worried about it. I don't want to have pain. I don't want to have my wife in anguish. I don't want to have that flag-draped coffin at Arlington before it's, it's going to happen anyway. But I know where I'm going. There are those of you here tonight who came to honor veterans. I'm a veteran. There are many of you here. Please, if you know a veteran who does not know Jesus Christ, be a John Grinnells to them. Be a centurion to them. It's not a difficult walk. The enemies that I have seen now for 16 years in 60 different embeds in this war have to do something. The enemies have to do something in order to get into heaven, their version of it. They have to die in the process of killing an infidel. All you have to do to become a follower of Jesus Christ. These words, Romans 10.9. Paul, writing to the church in Rome. If you confess with your lips 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be? Yes. Yes. If, if that is a challenge for you, turn to someone you know who's a follower of Jesus Christ. That's more important than anything you can do on this Veterans Day, particularly for a veteran. Because so many of us have seen so much, sometimes it seems difficult to get beyond it. I had the great blessing of, of working for a, a man that knew what heroes are. You can be a hero tonight to somebody else. You can put yourself at risk. The risk would be you're being rejected. Someone will refuse it. The man that inspired me for so much for so many years, five years. You notice in the bio that they give you, it only says from 1983 to 1986, North did such and so. For the first two years, I worked on a project that's so sensitive it's never been revealed. That's why the bio that the officials give you at the end of your time. And, and that why, that's one of the reasons why President Reagan said what he did about me. Didn't have anything to do with the medals on my chest. Didn't have anything to do with how good a husband or father I am or not. And you know what? It doesn't matter to Jesus Christ either. Because when I get there, when I get there, he's going to say, no, no, don't throw him into hell. He's one of mine. I would that those who are mine be with me where I am. And all the people that I, I can just see Dan Rather right now. What do you mean? You're going to keep him here? <laughs> yeah. 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 And Screwtape is going to do the same thing if you haven't read C.S. Lewis. I want to just show you a little bit to close of a president of the United States, not politics, who understand what heroes are. And we'll end with that. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. The price for this freedom at times has been high, but we have never been unwilling to pay that price. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers bearing crosses or stars of David. They add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended in places called Bellow Wood, the Argonne, Omaha Beach, Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Porkchop Hill, the Chosin Reservoir, and in a hundred rice paddies and jungles of a place called Vietnam. Under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Treptow, who left his job in a small town barber shop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. 
We're told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf, under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. We must realize that no arsenal or no weapon in the arsenals of the world is so formidable as the will and moral courage of free men and women. It is a weapon our adversaries in today's world do not have. It is a weapon that we as Americans do have. Let that be understood by those who practice terrorism and prey upon their neighbors. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Heard those words before? We're Americans. I want to... Uh, uh, oh. The, my, the video team that I work with at my foundation put that together with the permission of lots of people. And I, I appreciate, Pastor, the chance to be with you again. And I hope that you all understand. I, my, my charge to you here this evening is not one of, if you don't do this, you're not a good person or something. I hope you also understand that, for me, it's a lot easier to do that than some because I spent my entire youth 25 years in an organization that has as its motto the words Semper Fidelis. That's not a slogan. Always faithful is a way of life. If we care for our veterans right in ways that we described here this evening, America will remain the land of the free because it is the home of the brave. And it's wonderful communities like this that make all that true. God bless you and thank you for having me here on Veterans Weekend. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.